All right, let me preach at you a little bit. We are uh, picking up on a series I started a couple weeks ago uh, called More Than Enough. And and today, it's so fitting that these guys talk about losing their luggage and trying to figure out how God's going to provide because that's what I'm talking about today. Uh, us being willing to, to go without, to, to, to go as God, uh, you know, a, a, a po- appoints us to go and allows us to go and, and to trust him uh, for his more than enough. Um, I, I uh, was hanging out Friday night with a couple from our church at a, a, a trivia contest. Does anybody like to play trivia? Uh, we, we go to this, uh, this one spot to play uh, trivia together and, uh, you know, not to bury the headline. We won. How's it going? But... Uh, um, uh, the trivia contest started kind of poorly because the, the lady behind the lectern, the one who was hosting the trivia contest, had a hot mic. Anybody remember that skit from SNL, right? Ooh, hot mic. Every, everything was feeding back. Uh, every time she spoke, it just got louder and squeakier. It is annoying. Who's been in that meeting? Anybody been in that setting? Uh, and so um, I, I stood for it as long as I could, and then finally I couldn't do it anymore. And I walked up to her and I said, listen, I know you don't know me. We're probably going to win. I didn't say that. But uh, um, you don't know me, but I've been around some sound equipment. Would you mind if I just kind of check your settings? And she said, yes, please, because she had no idea. She had been told, turn this knob and, and speak into the mic, and that was the extent of her instruction. So I started messing around with, you know, the, the little that I understand. Has anybody heard me preach before? Not handy. Are you with me? All right. <laughs> And so I'm, I'm trying not to make things worse, but then on her lectern, right below where the mic was and where the podium part of the stand part of the lectern was, were dials. And someone had gone to these dials on this wired lectern and had taken the, the, the equalizer knobs and just spiked both of them. Now, I'm not a sound tech. Dave could tell you more about this, but that's bad. Anybody remember having a stereo in your room? If you like spiked all the highs to the highest levels, or the, I mean, it messes with the sound. And that was ha- what was happening uh, with this woman as she was trying to host this trivia contest. I just did a simple whoop and turned those things down or to, to what I hope was appropriate levels. And I'm here to tell you, it worked. <laughs> I have no idea if that had any bearing on our winning. I can neither confirm nor deny. I think we actually won legit. But... Uh, it reminded me of what we're talking about today. I'm, I'm going to spend next week talking to us more about some practical applications of being generous. Uh, that's next week. Come back. Some of you are like, oh, good. I'm not coming back. No, come back. Uh, but this week, I want us to address the heart and the mind when it comes to generosity, because that's where it begins. As we talk about God giving us more than enough, about us being generous as he is generous, as a, about us being givers in the same way that he gives couple things. One, I want you to know that I, I preach these messages because generosity is something that I, as your pastor, desire for you more than from you. I hope you believe me when I say that. Like, this is not a message because our coffers are empty, the, the, you know, the giving is way down, this is not, you know, we got to pass the basket twice, let's go. This is a message that is first and foremost about us becoming more like the generous God who gives us all things. Is everybody with me? I want that for you. I want your heart to be his heart. If that translates into you being generous with what he's given you here in this church or in other places, great. That's what it's supposed to do. But first and foremost, I want generosity to be something that can be said about you because it's going to be a blessing for you to be more like the God who is generous to you. That's the first thing. The second thing is that if we're going to be generous, we're going to have to tweak some dials. 
We're going to have to get the right settings in the right place in our hearts and our minds if generosity is going to become who we are. <laughs> There's prerequisites to being generous. My son Ben uh, just this past week found out that he has been accepted into a program of study to become a heart catheter technology technology techno, technician. There we go, that guy. Um, would, would it surprise you to know that uh, he had to go through about 18 hours of prerequisites to even qualify this, for this program? We, we paid for him to go to college for four years, and apparently none of what he studied will help with this. So uh, he had to go through all these prereqs, pre, pre-reqs, prereqs just to even be considered, and he had to get certain levels in those prerequisites to qualify at all. And, and by God's grace, he's a smart kid, and I hope he sees God behind this. Uh, but he made it, he's in, and off we go. It's the same thing with generosity. These things are prerequisite to us being generous. The first one is this. We must overcome, set the right levels of worship. We must, we must overcome the worship of me. If we're going to be generous, God's got to be first, others have to be second, and I come somewhere after that. But we cannot, we must not be dedicated first and foremost to ourselves. The second thing if we're going to be generous, is we need to overcome the desire for more. Overcome the worship of me and overcome the desire for more. Those are the two knobs we've got to have the right settings on. We've got to get over what I call the me, mine, more syndrome. Anybody suffering from me, mine, and more syndrome? Do your life all about me and what's mine? It's all about more. This is born of our nature. We are born with a sin nature that seeks to worship me. It's clear that our factory setting is me first. You can see this if you go to an elementary school tomorrow and watch kids line up. Do you remember being in the lineup? Hey, we're going out to recess. Uh, Everybody's going to go. We're all going to get there. What was the fuss about being first in line? Does anybody remember this? I remember like almost like getting in fights to be the first one in whatever line was being called for by my teacher. There'd be jostling and shoving and pushing and hey, right? And then anybody want to guess where I ended up in almost every one of those scenarios? Back of the line. Why? Because that was the punishment. Isn't that funny? The back of the line was the pain, the punishment that your teacher would inflict on you. Oh, and you got to go all the way to the back and... I'm going to be like three seconds later getting to recess now. Why is that such a big deal with kids? Because they're little sinners. That's why. They are bereft with a sin nature that says, me first. It's all about me. This inbred distortion of right worship is why God starts his Ten Commandments in the story of the Exodus Uh, with the children of Israel, with first things first. Everybody remember that? They've gotten across the Red Sea. They're hanging out. They're amazed by God's grace and emancipating them from slavery, these children of Israel, uh, of getting them across a body of water by separating uh, the seas, right? This this is a high that uh, Israel is experiencing in their connection with their God. And so God comes to them and says, okay, guys, I'm going to give you this system by which you can honor me. Here's, here's my top 10. And he starts with this. He says, hey, guys, uh, I am the Lord your God, the one who brought you out of Egypt, who freed you from slavery. Because I've done these things for you, do these things for me. And the first thing he says is that you shall have no other 
gods before me. Why does God say that? Because he knows that sin has made all of these people who he has saved obsessed with themselves. They worship the God in the mirror. And so they have to be told, reminded constantly not to divert their worship from him who is worthy, only one worthy, and to, and to put it on themselves or other things that have been created by him. That's where the next verse goes. Some people think it's a second commandment. Others would argue that it's just part and parcel of the first because he says, you'll have no other gods before me and you shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth uh, beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And he goes on from there. Everybody picking up what God's putting down? I alone am worthy of your worship. Don't worship anything else, especially, I would say, yourself. Got to get worship right. Life's not meant to be me first. Life's meant to be God first, others after him. So that's the first one. We need to overcome the worship of me. The second one is this. We need to overcome the desire for more. Would it surprise you that if your worship's off, uh, your picture of the things that this world can offer you is off, off too. If you're all about you, then the stuff of this world becomes uh, uh, for you uh, this means by which you can glorify yourself, comfort yourself, provide for yourself. If your worship's off, your approach to things is off. And that's why as a bookend to these 10 commands, God finishes with this one in verse 17 of Exodus 20. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that's your neighbor's. Put in other words, be satisfied with what I give you. If, if you have right worship, you put me first, that's going to be easier. But if your worship is off, your, your pursuit of more is going to be strong and greed Covetousness will live in your heart. You know, one of the first learns, words that we learn uh, after mommy, daddy, right, is what? Mine. Mine. You ever heard a little kid say that? They can't, like, put a sentence together. But they got that one down. You try to take something that they've, you know, found on the floor. The remote control is, was a favorite for my kids. They thought anything that was in their range was theirs. If I can reach it, it's mine. And so you'd come to them, and these little, aren't they, aren't the little sausage fingers, aren't they cute? These little itty-bitty, no-strength fingers, right? And I remember my, my two-year-old just holding on to this, you know, granddaddy remote, this big old universal remote, and, and they, have, they don't know how to use it. They can't eat it. There's, there's absolutely no purpose for this in their lives except that they think it's theirs and you can't have it because as they scream it in your face, holding on for all their worth to this useless piece of plastic, they yell, mine, over and over again and lose their lunch after it's gone. Like, that was the only thing in life that mattered and now it's gone. No. Oh. We have to teach our kids to share. Anybody remember teaching that to your kids if you're a parent? Our kids were kind of bunched together. We figured out what was going on and stopped it. But uh, they were all born within 33 months. And, uh, and so there was this constant friction in our home. Uh, daily lessons 
of that's not yours, give it back. Aren't we going to share? And our kids would just look at us every day, having been taught it the day before, the day before that, the day before that. They just look at us like, what are you talking about? Share? What is this word you speak of? I'm not going to share with him. Certainly not going to share with her. Anyway, uh, these are the things that God and his commands comes out against. Would it surprise you to know that there's over 2,000 verses in our scriptures that speak to the use of stuff, the proper understanding of things. There's countless more that speak to the right worship of God. Our Bibles are saturated with this stuff. If we skip forward from the Old Testament to the back of the New Testament, this guy Paul who writes most of the back of your Bibles uh, is speaking about this almost every time he picks up a pen as he uh, coaches pastors and churches to be who they were meant to be in Christ, he almost always says something about, hey, make sure you got these right mindsets. God's first, and he is enough. He says this as he writes his buddy Timothy, a fellow pastor working at a church in a place called Ephesus. Uh, in his first letter to Timothy, he says in chapter 6, verses 17, as for the rich of this present age, charge them not to be haughty a word that we use all the time. Stop being so haughty. Um, it's a word that means prideful, obsessed with self, uh, uh, self-made, self-worshipping even. Tell rich people, those who have, not to be me-worshippers, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. In so many words, Paul's teaching what God taught Israel, put me first and don't desire for more unduly. Overcome your worship of me, overcome your desire for more. In that verse 17, he's saying, don't be proud, don't bank your life on what's in your bank. And, and instead, do bank, worship your God. Since all that we have was his before, it was ours. Paul goes on in his letter to Timothy. He says in verse 18, there are, uh, these rich people are to do good, to be rich in good works. Here it comes, ready? To be, say it with me, generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Some of you are sitting there and like, that's right, Mark. You tell all those rich people in here that they need to be generous and they should, be, they should start by being generous with me. I think you're suffering from the syndrome, if that's what you're hearing. And you're also suffering from perhaps an unwitting ignorance. Because like I told you last time we talked about this, if you drove here this morning in a car, you're among the 10% wealthiest people in the world. Some are like, yeah, but we're not the 1%. And probably true. Most of us in here, the, the top 1% of earners in America in 2022 are right near the $1 million mark. If you make a million dollars a year, you are among the one percenters here in our country. But we need to expand beyond our borders a little bit in our conversation about this and understand that in the world, most people make dollars a day. The annual salary for the overwhelming majority of the world's population is about five to $7,000 a year. Some of you, that's a bad week. If you as a household earn $34,000 a year, which is well below the median household income of our county, 
you are among the 1% of the most wealthiest people in the world. So please, quit looking across the aisle at the rich people that God wrote that verse for. He's talking to us. We are, just one more time, among the most blessed people of all history, being born when we were born, where we were born. I know everybody in here has different bank account numbers and different levels of this and that, but understand, we are among the richest of all time. And as God speaks to us, he understands what those things, having those things can do to our souls. And so we got to make sure we tweak the dials, keep him in his proper place, and avoid the greed that can keep us from being generous. One last passage. Uh, let's go to Jesus. Can we do that? We've talked about the Old Testament. We've gone to Paul and some of the things that he said to the first century church. Let's go to Jesus. Did Jesus talk about money? You bet he did. He had uh, one conversation with a, a young religious guy who came to him and said, what do I, what do I gotta do to be saved? Anybody remember that one? I think it's Luke 18. Jesus says, well, hey man, keep all the commandments and, and, and you're, on a, you're on your way. And the guy says, done it, spiked the ball, you know, ah, touchdown, nailed it. Maybe the Bucks can figure that. Anyway, uh, but uh, he says, yeah, I got that. And then Jesus says what he says to him. He says, oh, one more thing. Go and sell everything that you have, and then, uh, you know, without your stuff, come and follow me. And, and most of us who grew up going to church know this story. If you didn't, here's how it ends. The guy leaves because the things that he had had him, and he was unwilling to release them to follow the Son of God in life. And Jesus says to his friends, as this kid's walking away, he's like, oh, man, I feel so bad for people with stuff. You know, it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich guy to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, he wasn't saying that rich people can't get into the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't even saying it was bad to be rich. He just feels bad for us, for those of us who have stuff. It's hard for us to keep our priorities straight. At another time, Jesus is teaching, this is in Luke 12, and I'll close with this. By close, I mean eventually. <laughs> but in Luke 12, Jesus is teaching. And if you read the, the verses that precede verse 13, which is where I'm going to start, he's teaching on some really heavy stuff. Like he's, he's warning against people following the Pharisees. He's basically calling out the established leadership of the Jewish religion and saying, don't trust these guys. This is like headline news, right? This would be a tweet. Jesus just said, don't trust the Pharisees, right? And all of Israel will be like, whoa, right? And then he talks about, hey, if you follow me, it's gonna be hard, but don't be afraid. Hey, if you follow me, you're gonna be persecuted, but stay strong. He talks about all these heavy things. And then in verse 13, this dude, we don't know his name. Uh, Jesus just calls him man. Perhaps he wasn't listening. This is entirely possible. Husbands, nod your heads with me right now, right? because you've had entire conversations where your wife has spoken for five minutes about everything that's in her heart, and she says, what do you think? And you say, huh? Because <laughs> the game was on, or if you were on planet, whatever. Anyway, uh, uh, it's a, it's, I'm, so I'm, I'm giving this guy a break. Maybe he just wasn't paying attention because what was mattering to him was dominating his mind, right? And he was just waiting for Jesus to take a breath so he could ask this non sequitur of a question. Here it comes. 
Someone in the crowd says to Jesus as he's teaching on all this heady stuff, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That's the setup. That's the whole thing. He doesn't go into me and my brother have you know, inherited this business from my father who's passed away and I want to go strike out on my own and so I need my half of the business. I don't, we don't have any details as to what the inheritance is that he's talking about, but he just raises his hand maybe, right? And Jesus is in this great crowd and he says, yes, Marty. And, and Marty says, uh, hey, can you be Judge Wapner up in this thing and litigate my inheritance squabble with my brother? This was common in, in Jewish culture of the time. Rabbis were kind of seen as small claims court. If there was an arbitrator needed in certain situations, you'd go to the guy that everybody trusted to be wise, right? So he's not way out of bounds, but he's certainly not <laughs> on subject when he asks this thing. And, and Jesus, I don't know if you've ever been in that conversation where you've been like, you know, really hammering certain things and someone comes out of left field. Jesus is like, seriously? You know what I mean? Come on. And he, he says something that in, in, as a Hebrew idiom is kind of a, a pejorative. It's like, it, it's dismissive when he says to this guy. We say things like, uh, verse 14, man who made me a judge or an arbiter over you. We say, hey, man, to people whose name we can't remember. Anybody done that this morning? Right? Hey, buddy. Hey, man. Hey, bro. Uh, this was, if you uh, just called uh, a fellow Jew uh, man, you were saying, it's like, seriously, man? Are you really asking me to be the judge or the arbitrator over you? It's kind of ironic. Who's our judge ultimately and eternally? Yeah, the guy who asked this question. He's going to sit on a throne and he's going to judge all of us. And what he's going to ask us if you're kind of new to church is, did you know me and what did you do for me? The first one's the biggie. And if you're sitting here today and you're kind of familiar with the Christian story and you think we're quaint and uh, it's interesting and I'm glad my relatives believe this stuff, here's what we believe to be true. You are heading for a destiny at the end of your life or at the return of Christ where Jesus will be your judge. And he will ask you, not what did you accomplish in your career, not all, you know, all your accolades. He'll just say, hey, did you put your faith in me to save yourself from your sins? Yes or no? And then if you say yes, he'll say, okay, beyond that, what did you do in my name, for my name? How did you honor me? Those are the two things that matter at the end of your life. And so if you're kind of new to this conversation, please come hear our wisdom. Be generous. It's great that you do that. But the most important thing that you know is that if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. And I pray that you receive him in your life. But in this case, Jesus didn't want to be judged yet. He's just like, come on, bro. I'm not going to wade into the weeds. And then he starts talking about greed. Because apparently, as the son of God, he can read hearts and read minds. And he saw that this guy, he was just suffering from me, mine, and more syndrome. I got to have what I got to have. It's all about me. I want more. And so Jesus says this. In verse 15, he says, take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness. It's the Greek word pleonexia. It means greed, thirst, desire for more. He says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This guy was focused on his deserved cut, his more. He hadn't learned to overcome uh, the worship of me, to overcome the desire of more. 
And so Jesus is going to teach, just as the Old Testament taught us, just as Paul taught us, uh, about what stops generosity. He's going to answer this question in the verses that follow by telling a parable. And he's going to say the same thing that I've been saying to you all morning. If you haven't picked it up yet, I'm saying two things. If you want to be generous, stop worshiping you and stop desiring unwisely more. Jesus starts with the latter. What stops generosity? An unwise desire for more stops generosity. He tells this story about a farmer. He says in verse 16, uh, uh, the, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So good news. This guy apparently was a good farmer. I grew up on a, uh, or in a farming uh, uh, culture. Uh, my senior year of high school, I actually went. My parents lived in Illinois. I lived in Maine with a farmer. I've never seen anybody work harder in my life than Fred Thompson did. Um, and rightly so. If farmers aren't out there before the sun comes up and don't stay out there until the sun goes down, there's a risk that their fields will not yield the crops that they desire. They've got to work hard. So we can at least say this about this guy in the story. He was a good farmer. We can also say this, God is a good God, because you can do all that you do as a farmer, and if God doesn't come through with the weather, the rain and the sun, and provide for that side of things, the yield doesn't produce. So God is blessed, this man has worked hard, and that's great, good things, right? Everybody with me? The problem comes when the question is asked, what am I going to do with all this extra he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and then I will store all my grain and my goods. Scholars love to make a big deal about the fact that in this one story, the, the personal pronoun, I or me, is used 12 times by this guy. He's pretty worshipy of himself. And his solution with all this extra, bigger barns, you guys see it in the news? I, th I think Derek Jeter's house just sold over on Davis Island. And whoever bought it, this house isn't even like 10 years old. It's got like 32 bedrooms in it. Whoever bought it, this is what I heard, is tearing it down to build another house. That's like stupid money. Is everybody with me on that? If you've got the audacity to like buy the, 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 you know, the primo spot in all of Tampa uh, real estate and then tear that house down so you can rebuild another one, there might be some me more in mind syndrome going on there. Is everybody with me? But that's what this guy's got. When it comes to my extra, it's obviously for me. Now, let's be fair. Uh, he's probably thinking, you know what? I might need this. Anybody that way? Who's a hoarder? Raise your hand if you're a hoarder. Okay. Oh, thank you. Okay. And he <laughs> actually did. I didn't think people actually would. Uh, and listen, I, I get the wisdom of being prepared, right? You know, I'm an overpacker on some trips. I don't know if I'll need this, but it fits in the bag. Let's go, right? Uh, and I'm, so I'm not saying all of that mentality is, is strictly wrong, but I am saying that that's often born of this mindset that I've got to take care of me because no one else will. I wonder if that's what this guy was thinking. Man, I've got to store this stuff up because I might need it. And I love the story that Noemi told this morning. Yeah, we flew all the way to India and our bags didn't go. Ever been in that situation? On a much sadder note, 
an entire region of our state about a month ago had a storm wipe everything out. And the stories that I'm hearing are certainly sadness over the loss, but grateful hearts over understanding what really matters in the wake of that loss, right? So I get it why people hoard and collect and keep, but we have to be careful not to cross the line into, um, uh, you know, from being wise and prepared, like Proverbs says, tells us about ants, you know, working hard, to being trusters of self and not of God. Yeah, it goes on and um, he, he basically shows us that uh, his decision when it comes to this extra is to keep it, not to share it. His desire is to um, worship himself, to serve himself, to provide for himself. And it's born of this mindset, this wrongful worship of me that stops generosity. It says, as Jesus tells the story, that this man, after he decided to build the barns, uh, you know, explained his reasoning behind building those barns. He says, and then I will say to my soul, verse 19, soul, got all third person there, uh, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Who's heard that last one? Is that on the kitchen wall somewhere in your house, right? Eat, drink, and be merry. It's in the Bible. Uh, I, don't, I don't want you to go home and rip the sign off, but it's almost always spoken of in negative terms. It's code for hedonism in our scriptures. Eat, drink, and be merry is like, oh, well, at least we have the world and what's in it. Let's just enjoy that. And in most cases, when it's referenced, it's in, in spite of or despite the presence of a holy God and, and where his place should be in our lives. This guy's like, hey, man, I'll just make this all about me. And Jesus, as he tells the story, explains that that was a bad choice because God comes to this man in his life and he calls him what? Fool, dummy. Does God talk to you like that? God calls me dummy all the time. I'm sitting there fuming over the fight I just had with Eleanor. I'm in there feeling all justified and being the jerk that I was. And God in his spirit comes to me and is like, dummy, you did it again. Now God comes to this guy and he says, fool, this night your soul that you just had this great speech to is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose are they going to be then? Not yours. This is kind of God saying, hey, listen, man, if you're not going to willingly give it, I'm going to take it and give it as I see fit. You can either have an attitude that worships me and is satisfied with your enough, or I'm going to create things that take away your stuff so that you can worship me and learn to be satisfied with your enough. Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Reminds me of what he said in Matthew about not laying up treasures for ourselves on earth, not being... Um, caught up in our default setting uh, to worship ourselves and as a result to, to accumulate more. All through your scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, the message of God is, hey, worship me and trust me for what you lack. Pray to me for your daily bread. 
And if I bless you, don't build the bigger barns. Be ready, willing to give as I appoint. Starts here. Starts here. Do you suffer from me, mine, and more syndrome? Hmm. Is this insidious little thing called the worship of me affecting your soul? My prayer is that we will know that God is more than enough. Will you stand with us as we sing?